Are people sinners? If so, how big a deal is it? More than that, how important is it that people know they are sinners? Should we tell them? And how do we balance people's sinfulness with their potential as God's image bearers? These are some of the questions posed by Michael J. Kruger in his book, The Ten Commandments of Progressive Christianity, that we'll be addressing today. This is David Rimes, and you're listening to Episode 16 of Footnotable. Joining me, as always, is Oren Connor, Senior Pastor at First Baptist Church in beautiful downtown Baton Rouge. Thank you so much for listening, and be sure to subscribe to keep up with future episodes and give us a sincere five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you listen to Footnotable. All right, Oren. So for the topic today, it got me thinking about a song from way back, even when we were little, we, we weren't listening to Christian rock and radio, things like that at this point in our lives, but I ran across it, you know, as I kind of got older. Did you ever listen to any of Steve Taylor's stuff? Yeah, Remember absolutely, him? man. Steve Taylor, kind of the godfather yeah. of CCM. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So the guy had a rapier wit. Yeah, he did. And um, there was always a lot of tongue in cheek that he had in his lyrics. And he had that album back in the early 80s called I Want to Be a Clone. Yes. I remember that one. Yes. And you know, it was it was kind of a big deal. It was one of those things you listened to. And he kind of snickered at, mm-hmm. uh, but you were really intrigued by it because he was kind of touching on topics that you didn't really hear touched in church. He was talking about Jesus culture and, you know, just some of the, the apathy that's of that's present, uh, even back then, you know, in American church. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was a bit scandalous, you know, not, not a lot of, uh, churchy people liked Steve Taylor, they thought he was a little bit uh, too much of kind of a, you know, uh, sharp tongue punk, mm-hmm. you know, exactly, and of yeah. course played, played that rock and roll. But he had one song on that album called Whatever Happened to Sin. Remember that song? Yeah, I do. I do. I don't even know if we can actually like play it, but. Probably not. We'll just probably not. <laughs> but anyway, this this is like the intro to it. And that's probably all we can do and get away with it yeah. uh, without yeah. being being sued. But anyway, it was it was a song that explored the whole issue of the change in the culture's view of sin. Mm-hmm. And he repeatedly asked the question, which is the, the title of the song, whatever happened to sin? You know, we used to see things this way, then something changed, and now we have an excuse for it. We kind of brush it off well, does sin still exist or not? And this is really get to the heart of the commandment number two for the progressive, uh, for progressive Christianity that we're talking about today. And that commandment is affirming people's potential is more important than reminding them of their brokenness. Yeah, absolutely. So this gets to the heart of sin. This is kind of where we're really going to be talking about a lot today. We're going to talk about potential for sure. But what we're going to see as we're going to go along here is that this whole statement that they're making as this being a better way to look at life and to view people is it's got to be taken in light of the issue of, of sin. Mm-hmm. And so we're going to have to kind of dive into this a little bit, dissect what uh, Gully is saying here, because what he's basically doing is he's attempting to redefine the problem. Yes. We as, we as Christians identify the problem as sin. Problem in the world is not uh, poverty. It's not uh, man's inhumanity to man. It's not uh, economic um you know, disparages, it's not injustice. We would say those are all terrible things, Yeah. but we would point to the root of all of those things as being the sin that resides in the the heart of every man, woman, and child that's Mm -hmm. ever been born with the exception of Jesus Christ. 
Right. But that's not where Kelly's going to take it. No, no. He, he, he is very clear that the problem, and he, he really approaches the, the idea of this about human potential um, and that it's the church's fault. Like the, the orthodox uh, sort of so-called gospel preaching, and he uses those words, so-called gospel preaching churches um, are really the problem because they spend so much time talking about people's brokenness, their sin, and why they need a state. Yeah, he really why throws they the church under the bus. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So, so, um, so his approach is the reason people don't want to go to church or want nothing to do with God is because Christians have spent so much time making people feel guilty about their sin and not talking about their human potential. And I, I understand where he's coming from. And some churches do abuse their, their platforms and their ministries by making people feel ashamed and guilty. The real question is, do you believe people have sin and must it be redeemed? Or do you just believe that most all or all people are, are really good and those that are not good, so, so, so to speak, are people that just um, didn't fulfill their good potential? Like he never really answers that question in the chapter, but he's clear to give you plenty of examples of people who have become disillusioned with the church because they were in an unhealthy environment where it was all about guilt and shame. And so uh, some of the arguments he makes are very common and very popular as sort of an indictment, a condemnation against the church, but he never really deals with the issue of what's what's wrong with human beings. In fact, he may even go so far as to say, there's nothing really wrong with any of us. We just need to fulfill our, our God-given potential. And so there's some problematic issues. And we, we talked about this last week, and you, you, you brought this up at the very beginning. Really, all of these commandments, this entire discussion is centered around how you see the Bible, how you read and understand what the Bible is. Is it God's word? Is it man's word? Um, Gully tends to go back and forth. The parts that he likes is God's word. The part that he doesn't was written by men. And he actually quoted, he actually says this to a man who had called him I and mean, discussed with him about coming to church to teach his children Bible stories. And Gully knew what he was talking about. And some of the, the more of violent types of Bible stories, those that are hard for us to read. And this is what Gully said to him. And this kind of sets the tone for, for our conversation today. He says, the Bible is important to us, so we handle it carefully. Not all of it is helpful, nor is all of it appropriate for children. So that's his approach to the word of God. So it shouldn't be surprising to us then that the idea of sin and human uh, brokenness and our need to be redeemed is something that he's sort of pushed aside as an unhealthy sort of toxic kind of teaching. And what we need to do is approach human potential though as, as the way forward to make people um, see how good they can be. And obviously we would wholeheartedly disagree because we do believe that the human heart um, is wicked, is sinful um, and rebels against God in many different ways. And so his, 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 other, his, his other quote, just, just to kind of get us going here, far too many churches and far too many Christians elevate God at the expense of humanity. For God to be good, we must be sinners in need of redemption. And I, 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 think, I think Gully has a fundamental understanding of the gospel, a misunderstanding of the gospel. Um, and so th this sort of sets the foundation for all of the arguments that he makes going forward. Yeah, and it's an unfortunate misunderstanding in this idea that we need a sinful humanity in order to have a good God. Right. Why in the world does that have to exist? Mm -hmm. Wouldn't, wouldn't it be better to have a good humanity mm -hmm. if we're making this stuff up, if we're trying to paint God in the best light possible, mm -hmm. then we want a good God. We want a loving God. We want a God that's, going to really be there for us and really be sympathetic to us. We want a God that's going to, you know, absolutely um, identify with us and is not going to be harsh to us. Right. So why have a God that has goodness that is contingent upon mm -hmm. the fact that we are wicked and terrible and bad? Mm -hmm. Why not just paint God good and paint ourselves good? Right. That's, that's the best of both worlds. Sure. You know, I mean, why, why, why bother with sin at all? So I think Gully is, he's 
he's grasping, he's, he's really making an unfortunate um, connection here. Mm-hmm. We don't need to make human beings out to be sinful just so that we can paint God as good. Exactly. God is good despite our sin, mm-hmm. despite our wicked hearts and evil desires. Mm-hmm. And that goodness is ultimately expressed in the cross, in the crucifixion of Jesus. Exactly. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's the, the, the fact that we recognize that we have sin is because God reveals himself as good. Have, is, if, if God did not reveal himself as good, we wouldn't know what good is. Therefore, we wouldn't know what evil or wicked or sin is. So the fact that God reveals himself as good helps us to understand that we're, we're not, at least not in the way that, that we should be. Therefore, we need a plan to go forward. And so the question you asked at the beginning, whatever happened to sin? Well, we, we push it aside to make ourselves feel better about ourselves. Gully's accusation that the church is, is applying guilt and shame upon people. And certainly churches have done that. But just because a person feels guilty or ashamed doesn't mean that someone's applying that. Maybe they just feel that way because they sense something is really wrong with their lives. And they have been striving and seeking to fulfill their own potential, but it hasn't ultimately worked. They feel guilt because they've done things that are wrong and their conscience bears witness to that. So God actually gives us an answer in his goodness for our our guilt, for our shame. And if a church is faithful with the word of God and faithful to proclaim the good news of the gospel, well, then that shame and that guilt actually has a definitive answer. As you said a moment ago, it's the cross of Jesus Christ. Human potential is a good thing for us to talk about. But it has to always be in light of the, 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 the way God created us to live. Human potential outside of God's good design is just human beings making it up as we go. And then we can do whatever we want. But if it's within God's framework of how he created humanity to be lived, we can really know what a good person is. We can also easily identify what evil is and speak against it because the word of God is clear against the evil of this world. And so to reject sin is to really re- reject what God says. I mean, what does 1 John chapter 1 say? If any man says he is without sin, he makes God out to be a liar, and the truth is not in him. If any man denies that he has any kind of sin, or that there's any kind of real penalty for that sin, we're denying the very thing that God has declared about us. So what does God know about you and me? What does God know about humanity? And has he given us a word to help us understand who we are so that we have an answer for these troubles that come our way. To ignore sin and to ignore the, the real problem with humanity is to ignore the very the very revelation of who God is. In a moment, a moment, you mentioned a moment ago about the, the problems of the world, you know, hunger and and homelessness and, and war and death. Well, all these things are a result of human sin. I've given the example before uh, about people asking, well, why doesn't God just get rid of all the evil in the world? Well, in order for God to do that, he'd have to remove all of the causes of the evil in the world. And the vast majority of the evil we experience in life is due to people. So in order for God to remove all the evil from the world, all the sinful things in the world, he would have to remove humans from the world because we're the ones responsible. Well, he doesn't do that. Instead, he redeems sinners and brings us into his family, into a relationship with him. And so human potential is best realized within the the framework of God's grace, God's mercy, and God's patient, loving kindness toward us. So yes, I need a Savior. Dave, you need a Savior. Our families, our, our church members, our neighbors and friends need a Savior because we don't have the potential within ourselves to save ourselves. Yeah, and we're not saying that there is no such thing as human potential. Right. Um, you know, when you look at the biblical worldview that sin somehow negates human potential, you know, I think that's almost kind of a little bit what Gully hints at is that if we insist on sin, we're somehow uh, downplaying human potential to the point of, you know, we're just stifling it. There is human potential always. The question is, is how is that potential being molded and shaped? If human potential is being molded and shaped by our sin, well, then it's very bad potential. That potential ends up in creating corruption. It, it creates greed. It creates uh, destruction uh, and chaos in our world. 
But if that potential is then molded and shaped by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ, well, then now it has the ability to do amazing things creatively. And we see uh, wonderful examples of that uh, through these expressions of sacrificial love and, and community that is not uh, selfish, that does truly care for one another and thinks of one another as more important than themselves and looks at the inadequacies and inequalities in our world and is moved by that grace to respond to that. And so human potential always exists. It's either shaped by sin that has been undealt with and therefore is negative, or it has been reshaped by grace and actually reaches the height of what humans are capable of you know, in this broken world, because they are now putting their potential towards godly things rather than worldly things. And so we're not, we're not, we don't have any confusion here. We're not saying that, well, yeah, we're all a bunch of sinners. Therefore human potential uh, just doesn't exist. Or you can only have human potential if you acquiesce to the Christian worldview uh, and Christian beliefs. That's not what we're saying at all. Christian human potential is always present. We just got to be really careful about what kind of outcome that potential is bringing. And if sin's not an issue, if sin is no big deal, then why does that potential do harm? Why does it always create beauty? Why does it always create loving things? Why do we have the problems that we have in society if sin does not exist? The temptation that we all have is to disregard sin. And again, to believe that we are enough in and of ourselves. But we, we, we have plenty of examples just in, in life, apart from scripture, we have plenty of examples where that doesn't work out. But when we actually go to the Bible and begin to examine the words of scripture, we, we have to deal with, uh, with what, the God, what, what God's word says. And this is what I find most disheartening and difficult, I guess, even to understand how Gully makes his arguments. Because on the one hand, he uses the Bible to, to prove points, but he does so kind of in a vague way. In fact, in the second chapter of his book, he, he refers to sort of two Bible stories, but he doesn't quote any verses of Scripture. He just refers to the story of Zacchaeus, and he refers to the creation story. In fact, he goes so far as to say that that the first uh, chapter of Genesis was was the was the correct creation story, and then man came along and added the second chapter. The first chapter made man and woman equal. They had dominion over the earth. They were made in God's image. The second chapter of Genesis a man took over and, and made women subservient to men and, and gave men power over women. And it, it becomes this sort of uh, culturally conditioned narrative that is, that is offensive to our, to our modern sensibilities. And so Gully sort of dismisses the second chapter of Genesis and the third chapter of Genesis and just really focuses on the first chapter. Well, it's all in the Bible. So you have to deal with those things. We, we mentioned this last week. What, what do you say to Jesus when the very first sermon he ever preaches is repent and believe the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Well, what are we repenting of? If you take the word repent, it means to turn, turn around, to turn away from. And the, and the concept in the scriptures is that to repent means to turn away from sin and turn toward righteousness, toward, toward right living according to God's plan, God's word. Right? But we also believe that in order to do that, a person has to have a changed heart and a changed mind. The Bible is not a list of suggestions for good deeds. The Bible is a revelation of the heart of God and our need to understand how we can know him, how we can be in right relationship to him because our sins have severed that relationship. If we weren't meant to turn away from sin and, and wrong living, then Jesus never would have said to repent. He would have said, just work harder at fulfilling your potential. But he didn't say that. In fact, John chapter 2 tells us that Jesus knew what was in the heart of men and did not entrust himself to men. He didn't reveal all that he was immediately to people because he knew that they would try to abuse him and use him for their own gain. They had sin in their hearts. 
And so to, to, to reject the, the notion that human beings are, are sinners, it's simply a complete rejection of the entire word of God. You literally have to go through and trim the Bible to just a few pages to, to try to get around the issue of sin. But Jesus doesn't run away from it. Jesus addresses it. He talks about repentance. <clears throat> he talks about forgiveness. He talks about love. And it's all in the context of having a changed heart. So when God's grace is applied to our lives, we can fulfill our potential because we have the ability now to bear rightly the image of the one who made us. But to reject God, to reject Jesus, means that we're trying to paint a picture that we've never seen before. It's like, I would equate it to like taking a thousand piece puzzle and dumping it onto a table, but never looking at the box, never looking at a picture of what you're trying to make. And you got to figure it out yourself. You can't do it. You, you don't know what you're, what you're trying to build. But when you have an image, a perfect image that is Christ, who is God, which we talked about last week, and you look at that box cover, now you can try to start putting the pieces together to make that image bear what you see in the picture. Well, well this is what God does. He transforms our hearts to make us want to be like Christ. Well, why do I have to be transformed? Because I'm in rebellion against God. I don't want to follow his rules, his, his laws, but now I do. Well, what happened? He changed my life. He gave me grace. The spirit came upon me and I was changed. And now I want to do all the good works that Gully says we should be doing. I want to do those things, not because I have potential, but because it makes God happy. It pleases the Lord for me to obey his commands. And so I just find it incredibly troubling that we could, that, that any man could stand before people and say, there's nothing really wrong with you, that you just need to try harder to fulfill your potential. And, and Dave, you, you and I have talked about this before, that, that, Many of the of the testimonies of people today are, are are something along the lines of, well, I'm the way I am because things things happen to me. It's this person's fault. It's that group of people's fault. It's that po political party, that financial hardship. I was fired from my job. I was, and it's always something that happened to me, what someone else caused. And we don't want to take responsibility for our own disobedience to God. But what I found in in over 20 years of ministry is the best thing you can do for people is to show them that that they're sinners from the scriptures, but also show them the incredible, incredible hope that we have in God's grace. God does not turn us away when we look to him. He brings us into relationship with him, and he gives us the answer, gives us the solution, which is Jesus himself. Trying to reinvent the solution to the human problem has never worked. People have been trying to do this for, for millennia, and it's just never worked. The solution has been given, and it's Christ. And so to, to say that human beings are not sinners is, is, is flat out wrong, but it's just disingenuous if you're going to try to also teach the, the, the moral standards of Scripture. It, it's completely inconsistent, and it doesn't hold up. And, and so my, my fear, and, and, and look, Gully talks about how churches need to, need to stop talking so much about sin and guilt and shame and start talking about, about human beings loving one another, being tolerant and accepting and, and more forgiving and, and and you know what? Yeah, we could certainly be more tolerant. We could certainly be more accepting and forgiving from time to time. But that ultimately doesn't solve the problem because I don't have it in me by myself on my own to do that. I need help. And Jesus is that help. Yeah, Gully really wants to make sin to be, you know, this y yucky, burdensome, just downer that the church has used to really you know, get people kind of under their thumb. Let's, let's, you know, you churches just tell everybody they're sinners, makes them feel bad about themselves. When they feel bad about themselves, they're looking for some sort of way out from under the predicament. And so they, they turn to uh, this invention of uh, Christ as, as crucified savior as a way to get out from the burden of sin. And, you know, Gully himself says that all this teaching on you know, the doctrine of sin is basically spiritual abuse. You're mistreating people. You know, nobody likes negative reinforcement. And look, I get that. Um, and I, I, I can, I can remember times in my life where, you know, some kind of revival or tent revival or, you know, some sort of little traveling evangelist, comes around with their hellfire and brimstone 
and we're all terrible. It doesn't matter if you are a baptized believer. You're not, according to this guy. And they're just going to lay it on you, how wicked and awful and terrible you are. And you all need to come forward and you need to get right. And good thing that I came along because, you know, I've got the, the true message of salvation for you that's going to lift this burden off of you. And when you take it like that, it, it is abuse. It is mistreating people. It's not an honest talk about sin. But just because some people do mistreat sin in this way doesn't mean that we can just excuse the whole thing. Look, I know it's depressing to think about being completely and utterly depraved, okay? Because we tend to want to think the best of ourselves. But this is the reality. And we can't shift what's wrong with the world, what's wrong with us onto some system or onto some other structure. We have to own it because if you remove sin, it creates this in, in, entire domino effect where the pillars of Christian doctrine all begin to tumble over. You, you take sin out. Now you have something that impacts everything else. You can't keep the rest of the Bible, the rest of historical Christian orthodoxy, and have sin not part of that, because nothing else works. The problem of sin is why we have everything that exists after Genesis chapter 3. If sin's not an issue, well, then we can just sort of go along and omit that, and everybody's great and wonderful, and God's good and loving. And again, like I mentioned last week, we just get it down to a pamphlet, because sin's not a problem, but the rest of the Bible repeatedly kind of beats us over the head with the reality that sin is a problem, and it doesn't do so in an abusive way. It does so in a way to help us see this is the reality. This is this is how people's hearts work. If you don't believe me, look around you. Here's story after story after story in circumstance after circumstance after circumstance of different people in different times and different places, all acting out of the wickedness that's in their hearts. Nobody else is at fault. No other outside forces are to blame. And it gives us an accurate representation of who we are at our cores. We are sinners. So what is God going to do about it? What can we do about it? And that's what the whole rest of the Bible is building towards. So if you take sin out, the rest of it just falls down. You have to change Jesus. You have to change the cross, why he went to the cross. You have to change salvation. And so essentially, that's what pro progressive Christianity does. They're at least honest about what happens when you take away sin? They realize the rest of it doesn't stand. So everything after that must now be tweaked. And so let's kind of get in a little bit about what is the impact of in Christianity, in our doctrines, when you take away sin. Yeah, when, when we take away the doctrine of sin, um, as you uh, mentioned a moment ago, it's like um, re removing that that. Uh, that foundational piece of understanding everything and that if there is no sin or if we're not sinners, well, then what was the cross for, right? The, you, I, th I think you and I would agree that the cross or the, the death and resurrection of Jesus are the, um, the, the greatest events in, in all of human history, okay? So if, if we are not sinners in need of redemption, well, then what was the cross for? Did did it happen at all? Would would you would 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 you Gully agree that the cross actually happened? And if it did, what was it for? Was it a big accident? Did the crowd just get all hyped up in in this this fever to see someone crucified, and they Jesus was the was was the was the poor victim that day, or was there a divine purpose behind Christ's sacrifice or his death on the cross? Gully even questions this in his book. He says. But what is salvation? What does it mean to have our souls saved? He says, a primary concern of Jesus was helping others become mature. 
spiritually, ethically, emotionally, and relationally. The church has typically understood salvation as being rescued from our sin and going to heaven when we die. But what if we believe salvation was our lifelong journey toward maturity, love, and wholeness? Were that the case, Jesus would not be the one who saves humanity by his sacrifice of blood, but the one who exemplifies this maturity, love, and wholeness, the one to whom Christians can look and say, this life is what it means to be saved. This is what it looks like to be fully human, and we can be like him. Now, in this paragraph, there's some things I agree with. I believe Jesus did come to teach us how to be spiritually, ethically, emotionally, and relationally whole. I do believe that. I believe he wants us to be mature and learn how to love and to be kind and, and serving of others. All those things are true. The question is, what happens if I don't do those things? Is there something wrong with me if I don't if I don't do them and if I don't want to do them? How do you counsel someone who feels, who knows that they've done something wrong? How do they have that, that, that guilt removed? Is it simply to say, brother, you're just not living up to your potential. Don't worry about your mistakes. Don't worry about your sins. Just be better. Be a better person. Well, what if I don't want to? What, what, what do the commands of Christ have to do with the rest of my life if right now I can't get past the one I committed yesterday, the sin I committed yesterday? I, 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 don't, I don't have an answer for that from Gully's perspective, but I do have an answer from the scriptures because Jesus, in his grace, redeems human life so that we can chase after these, 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 these very principles that Gully poses in the book. Yes, maturity is what we want. We want to be disciples of Christ and growing in, in, in our maturity and faith in him. But the barrier of sin has to be removed. What reason do I have to hope? What reason do I have to have joy if I know that I have not taken care of this thing that keeps getting in my way in, in my relationship with God? If I don't want to be a good person, what does that say about me? Is it just means that I haven't fulfilled my potential or does it say something else about my heart that needs to be fundamentally transformed? The, the doctrine of heaven. Yes, he, he mentions it here. And no, the, the purpose of salvation is not only to get you into heaven, but it is part of the Christian life to look forward to a day when we won't have to repent anymore. We won't have to pray anymore. We won't have to turn from sin anymore because we'll be with Jesus forever in perfect harmony. So does that doctrine even matter? If we reject the, the reality of sin, what if this life is all we, 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 we've been given and we just have to be really good and hope it all works out in the end? To, to, to reject the doctrine of sin is to ultimately tear down the cross of Christ for what it's always stood for and to make it into something that it just simply isn't meant to, meant to mean. And then it, it, it undermines a number of other beliefs that we have as, as Christians. And, and, and so... The reason I commit sin is because I want to rule my own life. Well, Gully's approach is simply that. Rule your own life. Fulfill your potential. Do these things that Jesus said to do and don't worry about the sins you've committed. And in that, I just I find that so inconsistent. It's really an impossible way to live. How could we put this burden on a person to live this kind of life when they know, when they know in their heart that something's gone wrong? And they need someone to help them understand how to alleviate that burden. Jesus talks about burdens being alleviated. He talks about love and forgiveness because he knows we need it. And, and, and so to, to reject the doctrine of sin is to, is to deny a number of other things that, that, that the scriptures clearly teach. Which again goes back to where we started with if you view the Bible as a book of suggestions that was mostly written by men. Well then of course you're, you're going to come to that conclusion. But if you believe it's God's inspired word and it's divinely written, well, well, then you have to take all of it for what it says and live by it as best you can, knowing that Christ is patient and forgiving when we fail. You know, when we talk about the impact that removing sin has on what we believe, what the Bible teaches. You know, one of the things that it it strikes at the most is the doctrine of substitutionary atonement. And this is a this is a really big deal because it gets at the, whole, the heart of why Christ died. You can't get around the fact that Jesus died. That's an historical fact. The eyewitnesses verify that Jesus was crucified on the cross. 
we've got Greek historians that verify that. We have Roman historians that verify that. We have Jewish historian that verifies that. Okay, so all the near sources verified that Jesus was a real man who was crucified by the Romans as a, a criminal on the cross. So you must deal with the fact that that happens and you have to give a reason why it happens. And we as Bible-believing Christians hold to what is known as the substitutionary atonement that says that Christ went to the cross on our behalf and that his life was, was given his blood was shed so that his perfect life, his righteousness, could be given to us who put our faith and our hope in him. That's just a very honestly overly simplistic way of talking about that, but that is the core of what is at stake, and we don't want to take it lightly because again, the domino effect, you take away sin and you eventually take away substitutionary atonement. You're not really left with anything when it comes to Christianity. And so this, this is important. And Gully and others recognize that they have to do something about this. And so they completely change all the narratives and we don't, we don't, they, and they, they sound in a lot of ways, plausible. Jesus dying is an example. Okay. Um, you know, he was, he was kind of an innocent victim, but, you know, look at where his good moral life led him. You know, if he can live a, a moral life, if he can live uh, that well with that much potential, uh, even if it costs us, we, we should be able to follow in his footsteps, right? That's, that doesn't get you anywhere. We have to look at the cross of Christ honestly and have some good conversations about this because a lot is at stake if we start removing these essential doctrines from what we believe. The, the reality of the cross tells the story of, of, of the heart of God. Throughout the Old Testament, we see sacrifices made, which people would look at and go, well, that's brutal and unnecessary. Why did they kill all those animals for their sins? Well, it's because God commanded them to. And, and all the sacrifices and all of the teachings of the Old Testament, the prophecies of a coming Messiah are all connected. And that all the sacrifices in the Old Testament we see among, say, the, the nation of Israel was a precursor or a foreshadowing of what Jesus would do. And so they would make sacrifices in the old times with, with, with oxes and, and goats and, and, and sheep, and they would do it over and over and over again. But when you come to the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, we, we read clearly that that system was done away with by Jesus. He went to the cross and was the final forever blood sacrifice for sin. No other sacrifices have to be made. It was final. If we take that away, right, if we take away the cross then one of two things has to happen. Either we reinstitute animal sacrifices or we do away with the entire need for it whatsoever, right? So we're not going to go back to animal sacrifices in, in, in Gully's mind. So then we just do away with the need for it altogether. So what you do, as you mentioned before, Dave, is just change what the cross meant. Jesus was a, was a hapless victim of an angry mob and a bunch of legalistic religious leaders who were jealous of him and were threatened by his, his radical new way of living, right? Completely false. Jesus himself said he was going to the cross. He says in John 10, he's laying his life down for the sheep. He told his disciples three different times that he was going to be handed over, crucified on the third day, rise. So if you believe in the moral teachings of Jesus, you must also believe in the words that he spoke about his own death. What for? What was it for? It was to pay for the sins of sinners like you and me so that we can walk in the right relationship with God, so that the teachings of Jesus would make sense to us and we would want to do them. 
because his death redeemed us from the curse that we were under because of our sin. And so, as you said before, again, to, to, to discount the substitutionary atonement, to say that Christ did not die in my place means I don't need a savior to die in my place. Therefore, Jesus' life on, on the cross, or de death on the cross, was only an example of, of how to suffer well. And that is, that's just a completely unbiblical approach because you have to reject all the rest of the scriptures that clearly point to the cross as God's um, hand at work to redeem sinners. And so do, do you have, as a human being, do you have potential? Of course you do. That, that's why you're here. God gives every human being incredible potential. But that potential is, is hindered and hampered by our own selfishness, by our own greed, by our own sinfulness. So we need someone to help us. We need someone to rescue us out of that pit. That's what Jesus does. And in that, we are then set free. I love the image in the New Testament, uh, the way Paul talks about wearing the garments of Christ or putting on the robes of Christ. And, and the, the image is, is that you're in a pit and you're all muddy and you think it's fine. And then one day the light is shined into that pit. You see how dirty you are. And Jesus reaches his hand down and he drags you out and he cleans you off. And instead of leaving those dirty clothes on you, he puts on new clean clothes, new robes of righteousness. And you are happy because he gave them to you. You didn't earn them yourself. You didn't work for them. You didn't stitch them together. He, he gave them to you out of his own goodness because he loves you. And now you want to honor him by how you wear those clothes, by how you wear those robes of righteousness. And, and to, to reject the substitutionary atonement is to say, I don't really need those robes, Jesus. I, I can be good. You made me with potential. I can be good in myself. I just need you to tell me what I should do. And, and again, if I, if I fail along the way, is that even a big deal to you? Or do I need to find an answer for my transgressions against you? Jesus would say, I, I went to the cross for your sake so that you would know that your sin, your, your sins against me are forgiven. So you don't have to live in guilt and shame with the burden upon you. You can go forward in faith because you know that I love you and I made you for this potential, which is to be holy. And that's one word that Gully never uses in his book. I had, at least I haven't seen it, is the word holy. I mean, how many times do we see the word holy in the scriptures? It's all over the place. Not once does he say that God made us to be holy. It just seems like he God, that God made us to be good. But yet he doesn't really define what that word means. But God made us to be holy like Jesus, because that's who Jesus was. A perfect God-man who came and died so that we could fulfill our potential as his holy people. Yeah, this is really the heart of what we believe. This is the gospel message. I mean, human potential is, is great to talk about. I love seeing what people can come up with, the, the, the heights that they can aspire to. It's fascinating what God has given us in order to be creative and inventive and some of the things that people can do, you know, for one another. But that is not the gospel. Just living up to your potential doesn't address so much of what is fundamentally wrong with ourselves, what's wrong with the world. And it gives us no hope beyond our own potential. What is, what is our potential to get us? Maybe, maybe 15 minutes of fame. Maybe um, some people may even get a, a lifelong uh, or years of legacy beyond that. You know, somebody's going to be like an Edison or uh, uh, Steve Jobs or something like that. And people will remember who they are and what they've done um, for, for generations and, and many, many years to come. But beyond that, I mean, what, what does it do for your soul? It doesn't do anything. And so feeling nice, feeling good, realizing that we do have the capacity to do amazing things is, is not a bad thing. It's just not everything. And so we have to address the rest of it. And the substitutionary atonement, the things that you've been just kind of, kind of walking through the past few minutes, that's, that's the heart of the gospel. Feeling good doesn't matter. Realizing our potential doesn't matter apart from the person and work of Jesus Christ. Because what we 
think about ourselves, how we identify ourselves, what we aspire to be, all of that is found in its perfection in Christ. Nobody else, nothing else outside of ourselves comes close to providing us with the fullness of identity and potential that Jesus does, but he doesn't just do it just so that we can be better at our jobs or just so we can be more creative in the arts or just so that we can, you know, get up in the morning and just feel really swell that we're great people. He did it because we were in bad shape. We were dead. We were blind. We were in darkness and we needed rescuing. You know, Jesus wasn't really concerned about how we thought of ourselves or what our potential was because we had a bigger problem and that's sin, which is why this is such an important conversation for us to be able to have. We can talk about affirming people's potential all day long, but in the end, we really haven't done anything worthwhile. Yeah. When it, when it boils down to, to a kind of its, its, its basic elements, human life is, is about either surrendering to the Lordship of Christ or, or kind of being our own Lord. And if you're going to be your own Lord, you can do whatever you want. You can do whatever, however you, you, you think you should. And you may find some happiness in that, but ultimately you won't have an answer for your greatest problem. But when Jesus is Lord, there are commands to follow, certainly, but you'll have true joy in your life because the biggest problem has been answered, and that's by Jesus Christ and his cross. So if you're listening listening to this today and you don't know that you are a sinner or don't believe that you're a sinner, you you are. But I'm not going to tell you there's nothing you can do about this. There's, there's something you can do about it, and it's to look to Jesus who paid the price for you at the cross. So by trusting in him, every sin has been forgiven. Yesterday's, today's, and tomorrow's is taken away. So now you can live without any kind of condemnation. You can live in hope that you are safe and secure every day that Christ is for you because he's alive in you. He's not on the outside of you kind of coaching you up and hoping that you figure it out. He's actually doing real spiritual work in your life every single day to conform you into his image, which is what glorifies God the Father. So the gospel is everything for us as Christians, and you can't have a gospel without the atonement of Christ at, at the cross. And just a quick note, I know Dave, Dave you put in our, in our notes here to, to talk a little bit about the, the film, uh, American Gospel, Christ Crucified. Uh, this is a, a, a DVD documentary that was put together um, last year, really last couple of years. Um, it's the second installment of a series of, of videos that these guys are, are talking a little bit about the um, the sort of the, the poor or poisonous teachings in America we see in American churches that deny the scriptures. So the first one was about the prosperity gospel and, and the dangers of it. And the second video is about uh, the atonement. Uh, that what does, what does the death of Christ mean? What is it for? Why do we believe it? And there's a several interviews uh, with differing pastors and perspectives um, showing that many, many people standing in pulpits and teaching platforms every week have no real belief in the substitutionary atonement of Christ. They believe in a lot of alternate things um, that, that people listen to and they, and they abide by it because it sounds hopeful and it sounds good, but it doesn't really answer the, the, the real problem. And so for those of you that may be wondering, um, I, I would encourage you to check out the, the video. I just started it. And I, I've only gotten a few minutes in, um, but uh, I know Dave, you've, you, you've watched the whole thing. Uh, we will show this to our church family at some point in the future. It's quite a long documentary, but it does sort of give you the, the, the picture of the difference between what true biblical teaching looks like and then what, what man's teaching looks like. And they are starkly uh, con- contrasted. And I think that's, that's because one is true and one is not. And so I'd encourage you to, to check that video out. It's called, it's called American Gospel, Christ Crucified. If you want to check that out, I think it'd be, it'd be well, well worth your time. Yeah, if you want to watch the first installment of that series, um, it's on Netflix right now. Uh, American Gospel, um, what's the tag on that one? Christ Alone. Christ Alone. American Gospel, Christ Alone. If you have Netflix, you can watch it for for, uh, for free. Uh, there, if you're Netflix subscription, you can uh, 
search for it. It's there. Um, definitely encourage anybody that is curious about prosperity gospel to check that out. Um, American gospel Christ crucified only has recently kind of been out. Uh, they were a little bit delayed in getting it put out there, uh, but we're, we're blessed to have a copy of it there at first Baptist. And like Warren said, we will take a chance for our church family to, to watch this. But if you do want to get a copy of it, you can go out there and search for it, get a, a DVD or I think a digital copy perhaps um, and watch it. It's three hours. Let's go ahead and tell you right now it's three hours long. That is a hefty documentary by anyone's standards, but it, it draws you in and it is engaging every step along the way. And it handles well this very issue that we've spent only like 50 minutes talking about today they dive into it deep and i think it's a great resource for the church today amen amen i totally agree we should definitely check it out if, if you get a chance and again if you want to get a copy of uh, the book the ten commandments of the of progressive christianity again just go on amazon.com you can pick it up it's not expensive at all it's by Michael J. Kruger, and you can follow along with our discussion because this is only number two Me of too. 10. So we've got eight more to go eight more. as we kind of break these down. Uh, so, yeah, do uh, feel free to uh, grab that book and follow along with us and, um, and tune in each week as uh, we take these commandments one at a time. Orrin, do you have it handy to give us a quick preview of next week? Yeah, so uh, Gully's book next week, um, his, the title of his third chapter, If the Church Were Christian, Reconciliation Would Be Valued Over Judgment. So the premise there is that we spend more time judging one another than reconciling with one another. And so we'll get into that next week and, um, and see what he says that we, we agree with. And then we'll see what we're likely going to disagree with uh, in this discussion next week. Next uh, commandment number three. That's all for this episode. Thanks again for listening. You can keep up with Footnotable on social media through the Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter accounts of First Baptist Church Baton Rouge. You can find all three at username FBCBR or on our website at FBCBR.com. If you want to connect with Oren and myself on social media, our individual information is listed in the show notes. Know that our prayers are with you, stay healthy, and we'll talk to you again next week.